Hey, everybody. We are live. My name is Andrew Krause. I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key over 21 years ago, and we have been coaching and mentoring inventors to license their products ever since. We're going to be doing a full hour of Q&A here if you guys have enough questions. I know it's a holiday week, so we'll see how many people show up. Um, usually, I don't think we've ever not been able to go a full hour. We always have too many questions and can't answer them all, but I think some people are on vacation this week. So if we run out of questions, we'll just call it a day a little bit early. Um, just to remind you, InventRight and what this session is all about is about licensing. So when you license to a company, it's their money, it's their workforce, and it's their distribution. You don't need to raise money, you don't need to hire employees, and you don't need to try to get distribution with retailers that really don't want to talk to you as a one product company. They want to talk to bigger companies. So when you license to that big company, you are that big company. And that's what licensing is. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let's just jump into some of these questions. Um, let's see. Some of you are speculating when things were going to start, but um, you know, it's starting right on time as it always has at 4 p.m. Pacific. I guess that'd be five mountain. 6 Central and 7 Eastern. So I sound like a TV show announcer. Um, Johnny says, and by the way, if you could type your first name, that would be great. Otherwise, I'm going to read whatever handle you have on YouTube. Um, and most of you don't even know what that is. I'm sure some of you are aware. So Johnny Storm, that's his handle, says, hello, I'm looking to patent an idea. Uh, why? We, we're just, I'm just messing with you, Johnny, but not really. You'll find out in a minute. Uh, but it needs one other company's patent to work within my system. I don't want them to see this and just do it themselves. What would be the right course of action? So I can't answer that specifically um, without knowing your invention. And that's my little disclaimer before we get going here. Please don't discuss that anything that's not publicly available. Do not make public disclosure on this live stream. And whatever I share with you should not be considered legal advice. Please consult your attorney for legal advice. So there's my little disclaimer. Um, so, Johnny, you're, you're doing things in the wrong order, as most inventors do. Um, you want to get a patent on something. Um, I'm just, I'll use what you guys, the questions you guys ask to answer other questions as well. So don't get offended if I do in a roundabout way and then come on back to your question. Um, you shouldn't be filing patents on things that you're not ready to reach out to companies for like in the next week or so. So now what we advise people to do is file a provisional patent application. And that gives you a whole year to say patent pending legally. And now it's not a patent, it's an application. You need to later file a utility and then reference the provisional, but it gives you a placeholder in time that if within that year, if you get some interest, most of our students, if the company cares about patents, which a lot of them don't, um, we can show you how to, if you're a student of ours, get the company to pay for the patent. So instead of spending $12,000 on a patent, not knowing if there's any interest, which is nuts most of the time, um, you're spending $75 on a provisional patent. You can write yourself. We give our students some software to do that, and we guide them throughout the process. And um, if you get interest, and the patent's important to them, then file a utility patent and they can give you the money 
or at least part of it to do so, or you could use a small advance on royalties to pay for that patent. So again, that's not directly answering Johnny's question, but it's going to be helpful to all of you. Um, so he's saying he wants to patent a product, but this other is, but it needs one other company's patent to work with my invention system. So, well, then you're kind of screwed. You should probably quit working on this project, Johnny, because now when inventors tell me that nine times out of 10, I don't find that to be true. And so I'm like, well, first of all, when another company patents something, they didn't patent the invention. And that's a dramatic pause, by the way. Here, I'll pause some more. There you go. All right. So they didn't patent the invention. They're patenting pieces of it or features of it. So they might have patented this hinge. So don't look at a product. This is amateur hour, so don't do this. You look at a product, you see it as a patent, you go, oh, well, that's patented. No, the product isn't patented. They have claims on certain aspects of the product. Okay. So one of the big things, uh, Johnny, that I see mistakes people make is they go, oh, they have a patent on that and I can't do mine without that. So therefore I'm screwed. And that's not true. So first of all, what you need to do, Johnny, is you need to look at their patent and you need to read through what's called claims. And they can be very poorly written. Actually a good patent, they're very clear and easy to understand. But some attorneys, I think they, they want you to think that um, they're super smart or write in a language you don't understand. And it's really not necessary to do that. Uh, I don't think a good patent attorney does that quite often. But so you got to read through each claim. There might be six claims or 10 claims or three claims or whatever it is. And so, you know, just because this is patented and for that product, oh, then they got everything they ever do with that product. No, they probably don't. So you read each claim. And so here's my advice for reading claims. You read it once. And let's say it's three sentences. Hopefully it's short. Hopefully. Um, and you're like, I don't know what they're saying. And you read it again. Again, like you have obsessive compulsive disorder. You read it like four or five times. And you're like, oh, they're just patenting that hook to hang it on the fence. Um, that's not a problem for me. Okay, next claim. Read it three or four or five times. Oh, they're just patenting that. Okay. And then you figure out the workarounds. Now, some people are like, well, people can work around me, Andrew. I'm like, no. If you think about all the workarounds, variations, improvements, and you include them in your patent, people can't work around them, but most people don't do that. You should do it, but most people don't do it. So if you got this other product, Johnny, and you're concerned about it, you don't want them to know about it, and you think you're patenting on top of their patent, this is their patent, and it covers these things, and you couldn't possibly do your invention without access to these things, well, then you're going to need their permission. And then why would you even work on the product? But what I'm saying is most of the time that is not the case. Read through the claims and you may very well realize you don't need them. You don't need to violate their uh, patent claims that you can figure out a way around them. Okay. And then people, of course, say, well, then they can figure out a way around me. It's like, no, think about the variations, work around improvements. Somebody tries that with you, they won't be able to get around you. That's very important. So um, the right course of action, uh, Johnny, is to do what I just said. And you might be that case where, like, you created something and you couldn't possibly do it without getting their permission as well because you'd be violating some of the claims. But check that you are. And if that's the case, you should probably move on to the next project. 
we, we aren't one trick pony guys. You can one trick ponies. You can always move on to the next project and maybe it'll come to you a week later, a month later. Oh, I got to work around for that. And then you get back to that project or you just forget about it altogether. Don't fall in love with your projects. Um, uh, John said, this is a different, this is John, not Johnny. Uh, after submitting a PPA, I got the acknowledgement receipt. Does that mean it is filed or do I just need to wait for some other response? So, when you file a provisional patent, it doesn't get reviewed by the patent office. They're just making sure you have a name, an address, and you paid your fee and you filled out the form. You could scribble on a piece of paper with crayon for as far as what you filed, what your claim, what your what you're writing about in your provisional patent application. They would accept it. So yeah, once you got that receipt back, that shows they accept it. Now you can legally say patent pending. You don't even have to say provisional patent pending. You say patent pending on your sell sheet. Now, people get excited about filing provisionals because so for 75 bucks, you can legally say patent pending, blah, blah, blah. If you're not ready to reach out and start calling, what's the point? You're just, their time's going to run out and you're going to file another provisional. It's just a game. People, I understand people get the warm and fuzzies, get all excited about um, the fact that you have this patent pending status. Um, and that's great. But if you're not ready and don't know how to reach out, what's the point? Now, okay, you could go, well, I just want to feel protected. You're, okay, it's only 75 bucks. You can learn how to write a provisional. And then maybe 10 months later, you file it again, then you get another year. Now, it doesn't extend that first year because they're not connected in any way. Um, so, yeah, so, John, that was a real easy question. Yeah, once you got acknowledgement back that they received it, then you're good. Um, Spunky Monkey says, who has attended here before? Again, I'm going to read your guys' handles if you don't put your first name. What do you think about uh, a contract asking for right of first refusal on any new product you come up with? Basically, they got first dibs on your ideas. Good or bad idea to sign it? Question mark. It's a big company. I think that can be fine. I think that right of first reviews, refusal on a variation of the product or what have you is probably a little bit more realistic, but right of first refusal on anything you ever come up with and you get assigned that, that's a little weird. Like, and it's probably not what they're asking. So let's say they do bicycle accessories and they want right of first, first, first refusal on your new mattress pillow. You know, does that make sense? So you could define it by a category or what have you, or it's just for variations on this existing product or something within a particular space. I think that can be okay without reading it. I can't tell you exactly, but um, so that's not bad, especially if it's in very much in the same space as, and what that means guys is that um, Spunky Monkey, because I'm sure that's what you go by when you reach out to companies, I'm just kidding, um, is, is would need to, show them, let's say they're doing a bicycle accessory and he has another bicycle accessory that he would need to show it to them first. And if they wanted it, they would, they, they would have to talk to him about it. Now, right of first refusal in my mind, depends on how you write it up, is not that they have to license it to him, but they get the first look at it. And if they decide not to, no, we, we're not interested in this one, then he can go license it to other ones. Um, if they are interested, it's still up to debate. If they can't agree on a royalty rate or whatever else it is, then it can move on as well. So it all depends on how you define it. I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad thing. I, they might really like you as an inventor and want to see all your stuff first. 
but it depends on how it's written. Um, ben said, what is the minimum royalty rate that I should settle for? So um, it's all relevant. There is no minimum royalty rate. Now, a common royalty rate for a consumer product is 5%. Some of our students get six, seven, eight. Sometimes it might be as low as three or for DRTV, very rarely too, but it's all relevant. Let's, so let's say, um, let's say you licensed a new label to Coca-Cola and they sell a billion Cokes a day. And this new label um, innovation for the, the Coke itself um, that, that goes on the container, um, you know, they're selling a billion Cokes a day. Are you going to get a 5% royalty on that? No, you might be okay with a 0.00001% royalty. You got to run the numbers. So um, you're in the wrong mindset, Ben, but I can quickly set you straight. Um, it's not the royalty rate. It's the royalty rate. The price of the product, is it a 99 cent product? Is it a $600 product, a $6,000 product? And the volume being sold. So when you have the royalty rate, the price of the product, the volume being sold, which is you're interviewing them about what they can sell, that's when you determine if you're okay with it. At the end of the day, it's how much money you're making, not the royalty rate. People get too obsessed about the royalty rate. You know, and you can hold them to whatever they say they can sell, or you twisted their arm to sell, or you're assuming they can sell in the contract, okay? So don't, there is no, what is what is the minimum royalty rate I should settle for? No, it's the minimum dollar amount you would settle for based on interviewing them about what they're gonna do with it, okay? Sometimes they get inventors that aren't event rights students and they literally signed a licensing deal with the company and I asked them, so where does the company sell? And they couldn't tell me. And I'm like, why would you sign a licensing deal if you don't know what retailers are, where they sell? And it, oh, they sent me a contract, Andrew, and I signed it. And I'm like, you're stupid. I, I didn't say that to them. I would never say that. I'm respectful. I'm just being um, colorful here to get your guys' attention. I never call anybody stupid. But, but that was a stupid thing to do. And so you need to interview them about what they're going to do with the product. So you could have a really big company, but they got small plans for your idea. Or you got this medium-sized company, but they got big plans for your idea. I, I saw that recently. So it's not the size of the company. It's what is their plans for your product? And you need to hold them to that in the contract. Now, when our students get interest, we put them all with their negotiation coach, Paul, and he guides the student to interview the company. And on many calls and emails, this doesn't happen over one call. And guys, just in case you're not clear, when you get interest from a company, you're not signing a contract two weeks later. You know, it's usually months of back and forth, sometimes six or eight. I would say the average is around three these days. But so don't think you, you get interest that you're just immediately talking about the royalty rate. You really shouldn't. Um, John, this is a different, yet a different John. No, same. this is the same John. Um, I'm going to go ahead and answer because I don't think we have as many people today. So I think I'm going to get to all the questions, which some of you I'm sure will like that. Um when reaching out to potential contacts on LinkedIn, is the idea to send a custom message or do you just try to connect? And if they accept, then you ask if you can send your sell sheet. Yeah, the latter, not the former. So our LinkedIn for licensing expert, Benjamin Harrison, who trains our students on how to use LinkedIn specifically for licensing. It doesn't get more specific than that, does it? It's a program specifically how to use LinkedIn for licensing. That's included with our coaching program. 
Um, he said, do not send custom connection requests. we got some students that do a slightly different technique. Usually, literally, you find Bob Smith. He works for XYZ Company. You click connect. You do not enter a custom note. So there's no ask. And a lot of people are like, accept, 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 accept. But now you're asking for something. They don't even know you yet. So you, you accept it. And then you wait a while. And then you ask permission. I would say wait at least three or four days. And then you can ask permission to send a sell sheet, you're looking to license it. And don't assume they're the right person. Say, would you be the right person? Even if you know they're the right person, it gives them a chance to pass you to somebody else if they want to, which is not a bad thing. They could say so-and-so sent me your way. Um, let's see. Uh, J-Bell here. Is the design studio still available after the six-month program ends? Yeah, all our students can get access to our design studio and where we make virtual prototypes and um, sell sheets for our students. Absolutely. Uh, Sean, Shannon. Shannon, that's interesting. I think that's an interesting spelling. Shannon. Hello, I recently received my prototype and contacted two companies that you've worked with in the past. They both passed on my invention. However, at what level should I work with you on licensing? So our students are everyone from housewives to astrophysicists doing everything from dog toys to medical devices to save lives. And they come to us at every step from I have a thought in my head to have made millions of dollars selling this product myself, but I got to license it because I'm drowning and everywhere in between. So you can come to us at any point and the coach will instantly jump to where you are and they're going to make sure you did the things that you've already done correctly, but that could be established pretty quickly if they're right. If they're not, you want them to say, this sell sheet sucks if you thought it was good. Um, or, you know, they're never going to say that, by the way. I'm just joking around when I say these things. So when I say it's stupid or it sucks, I, I never talk like that with our students. Um, but maybe it keeps it more entertaining and a little easier to pay attention. So um, we need to fix this. And... Don't hesitate for a sec to go back to those companies that said no and say you got a better marketing piece. Can you take a quick look or the ones that didn't reply? So that's just an example. So there is no right time. It's wherever you are, anywhere from a thought in your head to having sold millions of dollars with a product. But, you know, a big company can do a better job than you can selling it yourself or anywhere in between. We will instantly jump to where you are. It's customized to, to where you are. Um, I don't think that. We don't really say that on our website. I say that on uh, when I talk to people interested in the program all the time. Um, Jeremy said, can you remind us what days we are not having the biweekly Zoom meetings? I don't know. Jeremy must be uh, an InventRight student, I think. And I think he's talking about the smart pitch. So um, let's see. So today's the 20th. So Jeremy, if you're an InventRight student, smart pitch which is LinkedIn for licensing. We train people. That's actually tomorrow on the 21st at 4, 4 Pacific time. So it's actually tomorrow. So it's every other every other week. Might, yeah, I think we're good with the holiday. Um, Tim said, can you license a product that is being sold in one field but can be used in another field? Absolutely. And so not only that, but you can get a patent on it. So if you're using it one way, but using it a different way somewhere else, that's very common. Absolutely. But I can't say specifically yes, because I don't know what the product is. But yeah, absolutely. You can bring things over from one space, move it over. And the question is, like, 
maybe you're patenting like that change. You got to make some change to it for the new industry. Or you don't need to make a change, but it's used in a different way. So you could still get protection on the same product, but it being used in a different way. And the way you're explaining it in your provisional patent is different. Um, and so absolutely. But, you know, without getting into the specifics, that's where a coach comes in. Um, let's see. Hey, uh, this is Frank from Edmonton. Uh, does InventRight assist with finding contract developers? Finding contract developers. I don't know what you mean by a contract developer. Um, what we assist with is everything that's involved with you licensing your product to a big company. So our coach would guide you through making your list of potential licensees that you're going to license your product to. I, I don't say sell your product to because when you license your product to a company, if they don't perform, you get it back. So you're not selling your patent. You're not selling your idea. You're renting or leasing it, which the word is licensing. So, um, but I don't know what you mean by contract developers. I don't know if you could type in, we don't have, well, we have a decent audience, but we don't have that many questions. So um, Frank, if you could type in what you mean, define what you mean by contract developers, just retype the whole question. That'd be great. Um, okay, Spunky Monkey says, would love to hear you talk about your wall behind you and the importance of size and shelf space. Does a smaller item mean more profit for the retailer because they can fit more on the shelves? No, I, I don't think that the size of the product is relevant whatsoever um, to the profit for the retailer. I think you should be conscious of shelf space. So um, you should think about how much shelf space something's going to take. You know, your product is what it is, but maybe it could be designed two different ways. It could be broken down where you do a little assembly and it could be a smaller package. So self space is very relevant, but I don't think it ties in with profit. So I'm not worried about that, but they might go, Oh, that's going to take a lot of shelf space. And so when the company you licensed it to trying to sell it to a retailer, they might go, it's going to take up a lot of shelf space. We could fit three products in the same space. So it is relevant, but products are, are, are for different sizes. So I think almost everything up here, this isn't remotely all the stuff our students have licensed, just a few of them. Um, products that are students of license. So let's see what, yeah. Yeah, so so if the product is too big, it can be a problem, um, but uh, it's not really relevant to profit. You know, it's not really, so that's a good question. Thank you. Um, Paula said, question, what type of product does not typically require a PPA? Um, we recommend, so for our students, and none of this is legal advice today. I gave that disclaimer at the top of the hour. Um, we recommend that all our students, and we say the same thing to the public, that you should always file a PPA. It's only $75. Once you get good at it, you can usually do it in a couple hours. Pretty easy to upload to the Patent Office website. So go ahead and do that. Now, we have students that um, are in certain areas that are kind of a little more high volume idea uh, ideas. And, and so like, for instance, novelty is one of those, one of, one of just a few, really. Um, so novelty, like little gag gifts and little things like that. And so um, if you, you're in, let's say you're in novelty and, you, you know, the way you make a relationships with companies is to send them your first product. 
And then you say, are you open to more? And they're like, oh, sure. You're really clever. I, I really like to get more novelties from you. And, and the inventor is like, hey, can I send like three to you at the same time? Four, are you okay with that? And the, the marketing manager is like, oh, yeah, sure. That's fine. And so once you've made a relationship with certain companies, what some of our students will do in certain areas that aren't patent obsessed, like novelty consumer items, um, like a little gag gift or a little funny little thing or something, is they'll they 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 will not file a provisional on every single thing they send because they kind of have a relationship with these companies and they send it out there and then one gets traction, then maybe they'll file the provisional because it's like a volume game. Maybe they send 10 products out a month, you know, on these little because they've made relationships with the company. It's more of a sketch with something quick mocked up because these particular marketing managers said, Hey, I'm cool with that. You don't need to do the full presentation. And then you're like, well, I don't want to spend 75 bucks on every one. If I'm going to send 10 this month, I don't want to spend 750 on provisionals. So that's a rare instance where um, sometimes some of our students have opted not to file a provisional. When you guys are new to this, if you're listening to me, you're probably not super experienced, licensed tons of product inventors. Um, so just file the provisional patent. It's only 75 bucks. You don't need an attorney to do it. Um, if you sign up with our coaching program, we give you a solution that helps you file it. You can file as many provisionals as you want with that. And after using that for about six months, you probably won't even need it anymore. You'll get the feel for it. Um, so let's see. Uh, so Paula, that was an interesting question. You guys all have great questions. These are great. Um, uh, Darrell says, is it true that you only have to change a patent 10% to get a new patent? No, it's absolutely not true. And I don't know why people insist on this percentage. Darrell, you just probably heard that. So that's fine. Not giving you a hard time. There is no percentage. This is complete and utter BS. There is no, oh, I have to change it 10%. No, it's like if there are other patents and there are claims, and I talked about this the, at the top of the hour, and if you missed that and you came in late, you can go back and watch the replay. But um, you got to look at the claims for these patents. Are you violating the claims in their patent or not? It's not a percentage change. There's no such thing. And people say that all the time. And I'm like, where are they? they people want to simplify it. I get it, but I'll simplify it. If there's a patent you're concerned about, read through the claims. And if you're not violating any of them, go freaking do it. And if you are, figure out a way around it, which you can most of the time. And that's not going to happen to you because you're th going to think about those variations, include them in your provisional and your utility patent. Because whenever I say uh, just work around their patents, and people are, well, people work around me. I'm like, not if you do a good job. But guess what? Most people don't do a good job. Co even companies don't do a good job. Attorneys don't grill their clients, their inventor clients or company clients. Look, look, you need to give oil variations, workarounds, improvements. They're like, and, and the company or the inventor falsely believes like, well, that's your job. Here you go. You're good. No, it's your job as the inventor to give them the workarounds, variations, improvements. And you didn't do your job as an inventor if you did that or if you're filing a provisional yourself, um, which you I would prefer that you do. Don't go blowing a bunch of money with attorneys that you did it. And guess what? Also, if the attorney's not asking you for that, they did a crappy job. They did not do a good job as an attorney. And some of them, they don't want to ask you for that because you're already as an inventor on the misperception that, oh, they, they file a patent. They'll handle that. No, that's crap. A good attorney will insist you file and they won't be worried about losing the business because they're putting work back on you. They'll in the end be doing a better job with the, of you. And it turns my stomach Every time when patent attorneys just take the garbage an inventor gives them and they file a patent. And some of them are some of these patent attorneys are kind of jaded 
And they're like, oh, this inventor is never going to do anything. This is anyway. And they don't really care how good of a job it is. And they know they can't do a good job with what you gave them. And that's messed up. But I'm not going to blame attorneys. You're If you're responsible for it and you know that now, then, you know, you can't blame it on the attorney, you know. But I do think a good attorney will make it very clear. Attorneys don't, licensing uh, patent attorneys, they don't even do basic things. Like they'll charge you a price to file it and they don't explain. I've talked to so many inventors. They don't explain the inventor. Look, there's going to be something later called office action. So one to three years later, when the patent office gets back to your attorney and they start to argue, they call them, I call them office actions. This is an argument between the patent examiner and your patent attorney. And they, they're debating as to what claims to give you. When that is the case, sorry, I'm getting messages coming in here. When that is the case, um, that's going to cost you money. And the patent attorneys will quite often go, here's the money, this is eight grand. And they're not telling you it's going to be like another three or four grand if there's a lot of office actions going back and forth. Other ones will say they won't charge you for that. Most will charge for that. Um, and how can you not inform your client about what are some of the costs to come? What are the, what's the cost down the road, you know? And, and so always ask your attorney that that's, that's a great tip guys. If, but don't run around throwing money at patent attorneys, please follow your own provisionals. Um, but make sure you're doing a good job of it. Let's see what else we got here. Uh, da, da, da. Okay, Alex, Alexandri, uh, I don't know if I'm ever pronouncing that right, sorry. Um, some companies give you money to block or reserve one of your ideas for months. Is this still a thing? Uh, objective is to avoid competition to take the idea when the timing is bad for them to launch it. So um, it's called a holding fee. I see it extremely rarely here at InventRight. To be honest with you, most of the time they'll just drag the deal along and they would prefer not to pay you a holding fee um, while they're trying to make a decision. Um, so I we don't utilize it very often here at InventRight. But if a company is like, you know, we really like this, but we're not going to be doing anything with this for 10 months and they're honest with you about it, sometimes they're not, and then you could get some sort of holding fee. You got to be really careful about when you approach that subject, how you approach it. We do it very rarely here at InventRight. Um, so yes, it is a thing. And yes, it can be applicable. But most of the time, they'll just drag their feet on the deal. And then they don't have to pay you a holding fee. But that's not all bad because you should be reaching out to other companies at the same time. One of the biggest mistakes our students try to make, but we don't let them, is they get interest from one company and they want to stop because they're just so flattered this company showed interest. Initial interest is not a closed deal. You should be moving forward with other companies at the same time. You don't tell them, look, I got interest from this one. You do not pit them against each other. That's a great tip, guys. Never, ever do that. I wouldn't say ever because there's no ever, but almost never do that. And if you're going to do it, talk to somebody that really experienced in licensing because you don't really want to do that. Um, but... Uh, yeah, holding fees, very, very rare, but could make sense. Um, uh, Marcus says, um, Marcus here, I am torn between two products to try to pitch to companies. One is very simple, but one applies to a handful of companies. 
The other is more complex, but has a long list of companies. Ooh, this is a this is a tough one. I always like when you're learning licensing, picking the simpler one, the one with a clear benefit, no major manufacturing issues, easy to understand, company can look at, they like it or they don't. So I like that about one of your ideas, which is simple. Um, one of your ideas, okay, uh, is Marcus. Um, so one is very simple, but applies to a handful of companies. So I bet you your simple one does not apply to a handful of companies. Nine times out of 10, when I'm talking to non-invent right students and they share their list of companies, they're planning on reaching out to me. I'm going, why is it so anemic? Why those three? You got like easily 30 companies here. So Marcus, my advice to you without knowing your product, so I can't know for sure, is you're probably wrong about that very small list of companies on the simple idea. So if you have a simple idea and you can expand that list of companies, that would be a great project to work on. Um, now, the other one is more complex, but it's a long list of companies. Well, also, how do you define complex? I don't know. You know, it might seem complex to you, but you can see they're already making this type of product and your change to their product is not complex. Or maybe the whole thing is complex. But I would stick probably with a simple product if you can expand that list of companies um, and get some nice experience. That'll be a great place to get started. But we're all talking in speculation here because I don't know what your product is, but hopefully that was helpful. Um, Paula said, what is the easiest type of product to license as the first product? I'm not going to share a particular category. I would say a product that doesn't have any major manufacturing issues. And there's, you probably are like, well, Andrew, I'm not a manufacturing expert. I, I wouldn't know. It's like, yeah, you would know most of the time. Look at other products in the space of your invention and say, well, oh, I know they can make that and they can make that. And mine's only a little bit different over here. And so when they ask me how it's made, I'm going to be like, well, that and that's out there. It's made for 1995. That one's $24.95. I'm just changing this hinge or I'm just changing this. So um, a product that they can look at it and they're not instantly thinking, I have no freaking idea how I would do this, right? Um, or if they ask, you know, how would you do this? You got a decent answer and you do not need to be a manufacturing expert. You can just make observations of similar products and you give them that info. So no major manufacturing issues. Product is easy to understand. They may or may not like it, but the benefits are clear. And most inventors outside InventRight absolutely suck at making the benefits clear because you've been up in your own head about it for months or years or some people a decade. And you're like thinking three steps ahead and the marketing piece isn't good for somebody that's seeing it the first time. So something that is very clear. So Yes, you can something. Trust me, I've seen it. You can have a clear product and you can make it unclear because your marketing's terrible. OK, so a product that with the proper marketing can be pretty clear. I understand the benefit of that. So one that has clear benefits with good marketing can be easily understandable. No major manufacturing issues, you know, and it fits in with the other products in that space, but it has a point of difference. Like, you know, and so those are just a couple things. Um, uh, yeah, let's see. Joe says, does it matter if a few months after you connect with someone on LinkedIn before you attempt to ask a sell sheet? 
No, not at all. Oh my God. I mean, this guy's, I, I don't know. I forget how many LinkedIn contacts I have. I think about 11,000, I think. I, I just click accept, 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 accept. If I, this is me, this isn't everybody, but the only thing I'm looking for is, is it some sleazy invention scam company? I'm going to deny them, but anybody else I'll accept into my network. And you guys should more or less do the same thing. You're not being so picky and choosy because like if you guys added me, I would go ahead and do this. If you added me to your LinkedIn network, you'd instantly be a secondary connection to my 11,000 contacts. All right. It's some sort of weird pyramid scheme, LinkedIn. It's not. I'm just making a joke. Um, so, but I've had people go, Andrew, I see that you know Bob Smith. Can you introduce me? I'm like, what do you mean? I don't know Bob Smith. Oh, he's on your LinkedIn. I'm like, I don't know him. I know like maybe a half a percent of the people on my LinkedIn. I know all our rights students. I don't, I don't know all those people. So um, let's get back to your question. So you're saying, does it matter if after a few months, you, you connect and you don't reach out after a few months. It makes no difference whatsoever. They're not paying attention. They got thousands of contacts. They clicked accept. It doesn't matter if you send them something two days later or a week later or two years later. Go ahead and start adding those people to your LinkedIn network. Absolutely. If they're marketing managers for companies, you know, in that space. So, no, it doesn't matter at all. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Um Let's see. Steven says, hi, Andrew. I currently have my PPA virtual prototype cell sheet, 3D renderings. Oh, okay. You got a lot. That's great. I would like to be a student with InventRight. Which services that you guys offer would recommend for me? I do the premium program. That's the one-on-one -on -one coaching program where you're talking to a coach every single week. You can email them anytime. And our negotiation coach, Paul's waiting in the wings to help you with any interest you get. So like I said earlier, we instantly will jump to where you're at. So when we look at your virtual prototype, your PPA, your sell sheet, you know, and all these things, we need to make sure I've seen some pretty terrible 3D renderings and virtual prototypes. So that looks good. You're good to go. If not, we're going to say this isn't cutting it. We don't I don't care if you spent twenty thousand dollars on a virtual prototype. Nobody don't ever spend that, guys. But if you did and it sucks, we're going to tell you so. If you're marketing, you got a sell sheet. If that sucks, we're going to tell you so. Now, if all that's great. The next thing you would probably do is you'd start working on your list of companies and you talk to your coach about they need to really see you did your research. Most people didn't do the research. Now, if you did it, great. You move past that very quickly, too. And then you're making your list of companies and you're starting to reach out to companies. So sometimes you get people like, hey, Andrew, you know, I did all this stuff. Can I get a discount on the program? I'm like, why? We're just going to jump to where you are and you're going to get more higher level help. So you're going to be we're going to be helping out with higher level stuff sooner throughout your whole membership. So why would I give you a discount? So we'll jump to wherever you are, but the one-on-one -on -one coaching is where it's at. When you see our students licensing stuff every week, I don't know if you guys get our newsletter. We get some people that tell us they get anxiety about it because they see it. And somebody told Steven, our other co-founder, this just the other day, I don't even look at the email. I just see success and another person licensed it and I just close it because it's just reminding me I'm not doing anything with my projects. Some people say that and they get irritated by it. And others are like, oh, this is good. It makes me, it confirms that people are licensing stuff, you know? Because like, you know, there's all these cheesy, like get rich quick real estate courses and stuff. And you know somebody that's made money in real estate, right? But a lot of you may not know, like somebody that's licensed a physical product before, but I'm telling you, our students are doing it all the time and you see it every week. 
But the joke I'm kind of making, which is really a joke, it irritates some people. They see our students licensing all the time and it, and it irritates them. Most people, they find it encouraging. But um, so, Stephen, I would say the premium program, the, which is the one-on-one -on -one coaching program, um, you can pay for that over six months or one payment either way. Um, and we will start you off with where you are. Um, my guess is you're, it's more than likely that your prototype, your virtual prototype is good. It's less likely that your marketing is completely tweaked in. If it is great, if it's not, the coach will say, we need to fix this. Because you don't want to be reaching out to 30 companies with something that's just okay. And it's not, it's not hitting them. They're seeing it. Because when you send to a marketing manager, you have six to 10 seconds. That's it, guys. Six to 10 seconds. If they're not intrigued, they'll be like, well, they're making me think. My customer's going to think too. No. You know, so uh, we, we don't, we don't pump people up with a bunch of BS. Like we're, we're going to like, no, this is good. This is great. You know, this company's no good. Okay, now it's good. Okay, let, let's do it right. That's why we call ourselves Invent Right. I don't normally say that because it sounds cheesy, but that's why, it's how we came up with the name. Every inventor was doing pretty much everything wrong, most inventors, and that's why we named our company Invent Right. Unfortunately, it's Invent Something, and there are these other invention companies out there that I'm just like, they're like, are you one of them? I'm like, hell no, we're not one of them. We're the, we're the good guys. Um, we've been doing this for two decades, guys. So it's not like we started doing this yesterday, over two decades. Let's see what the next question was here. Um, uh, Brian said, greetings from Denmark. In my studies as an engineer in the process and innovation, in process and innovation, I'll be doing a lot of product concept development. Okay. Um, the work will be subject to some amount of public disclosure as a handful of people will see it. I'm wondering how my big chances are to license products I've worked on in school. Well, I don't know what agreement you have with your school. Um, I, I wouldn't really worry about it too much. I, I would, what I would do is I go ahead and file a U.S. provisional patent application. You're in Denmark. We've had students in over 65 countries. All our students around the world just file a U.S. provisional patent application. Now, what you could do is if you're making a public disclosure in school, for those people you're doing a public disclosure with, you can ask them to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, but you could also just file a provisional patent before you publicly disclose it. So that's another way to go about it. And then start pitching it to companies pretty quickly. I think that's great. You're working um, you're working in school to, to learn that. I think that's great. They don't teach you anything about licensing, but they're teaching you engineering. So that's cool. Um, Uh, so Jer uh, Rick's, uh, no, Jeremy, Thursday this e weaving and next, we're not having those meetings because of the holidays. So let me see, take a look here. So next Thursday is the 30th. Yeah, I don't think we're going to have one on the 30th. Well, no, I'm not looking at this right. It's Mondays. Okay, sorry, Mondays, guys. Um, 27th, let's see. Let me see. Hold on. Um, 27th is next Monday. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to do next Monday. Then the third is the one after that. So probably just not next week, but the third of January. Yeah, we'll do it. Third of January. We'll do this. Um, okay. Uh, to do, uh, Spunky Monkey says, thanks for answering, Andrew. You're the best. You're welcome. Spunky Monkey. I just like saying that. Um, 
Okay. Yeah, we get this question pretty often. RT says, hello, do you have any experience seeing inventors create an item and license it to the U.S. government? You wouldn't license to the U.S. government. You would license to a contractor company that would then sell it to the U.S. government. Okay. Just like um, think of the U.S. government as the purchaser or the retailer. So you don't license to Walmart. You license the companies that sell at Walmart. Same thing with government. You don't license to the government. There might be isolated instances, but you license to contract manufacturers. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, government contract manufacturers that sell product to the government. So if you've got a new canteen or something, obviously there's all sorts of things the government buys now, but I'm just saying a typical military supply. You've got this new canteen that's leak-proof, or destruction proof, or whatever, you're going to find companies are making those types of products and selling them to the government. You're not going to approach the government. Okay. Now you might do a little pull through marketing, intrigue them, and then put them together, but just approach the contractors for the most part. Um, okay. Evan says, I'm planning to begin InventRight Academy. That's our lower price program. That's group coaching. There are three one-on-one calls, but it's not every week for half a year, but it's it's uh, group coaching. So you're in a group. Um, and should I come into it with as many ideas as I can or come up with, or would it be better to wait and learn the best method to creating new product ideas? No, you should, you should, we should use our training videos that are in there to figure out which project to work on first and then work on that one project. And then once you got your bearings, then you can work on different projects. So you don't need to come in with as many as you can, but you need to come in with one. And a lot of times people aren't sure. They're like, I like it when inventors are like, I can work on any of these five or eight or 10. Then a coach can help you evaluate which ones to work on. Um, you know, And so you could get some help um, from a coach because you do with the academy, you do get three one-on-one coaching calls, but they're very focused. There's really not one in there where they're going to go over eight ideas and help you figure out which one to work on. So you kind of got to watch the training videos to do that. And then they'll help you work on the one that you picked. But if there's issues, they can let you know during those three one-on-one coaching sessions. Well, most everything is done in the group session, which you can't disclose your invention in the group. Um, you can during a three one-on-one sessions. So um, I would say if you're just open to work on any of these ideas, then, you know, the premium, the one-on-one coaching program would be great. But if you just have one that you think is decent based on your research, um, I would just work on that one. And then if you're really motivated, you can work on a second one. But with the academy, you don't have a coach pushing you along the entire way. So you need to be almost more self-motivated to do academy than the premium program, which is the one-on-one coaching, because a coach is riding your ass every week. And I mean that in a positive way. You know what I mean? Um, So let's see. Alexandria, can you give us an example of the easiest market or kind of licensing to get your first deal? 80-20. Yeah, I kind of did that earlier. So yeah, I did that earlier talking about those criteria. Zam, I understand that with a product like packaging, that the royalty rate is low because it's a high volume. But I always wondered if that would actually be fair. Yeah, you you know, I mean, companies aren't going to give you something insane. You know, I mean, if they're making, if Coke's making a bazillion Cokes, uh, they make a billion Cokes a day. And if you have some innovation to the container, 
Are you going to get a 5% royalty on the whole product if it's a piece of it? Hell no. And you'll be fine with getting a 0.0001% royalty or whatever, because in the end, you're looking at the money. So this whole thing, and don't go blurting out. We always tell our students this. Don't go blurting out when somebody asks, well, 5%, because Andrew or Steven said 5%. No, don't do that ever, um, because we've had a lot of students that don't do that. The company comes back, oh, you know, have you done other deals? Yeah, you know, we did a deal with another inventor and we gave him 8%. You're like, oh, nice. And you're like, oh, well, yeah, that sounds, let me think on that. That sounds good. You know, and, and so don't mess yourself up that way, thinking you're being smart by blurting out 5% when you could actually be being stupid, you know, by doing that. There I go, using the word stupid again. Um, okay. Uh, do, 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 do. Let's go down here. Lynn said, I contacted a potential licensee a few days ago, and he said, I'd be surprised to hear anyone open to such an approach with today's legal system. What do you think of this reply? Yeah, he's an asshole. Um, once in a blue moon, our students will get stuff like that. I think inventors think that that's normal. Um, that's not normal at all. That's like, you know, so so Lynn approached a potential licensee a few days ago, and they say, I'd be surprised here anyone open to such an approach with today's legal system. It's like, first of all, I don't know what business he's in, Lynn, but uh, we don't get our students hearing that sort of thing. Um, you know, and he's just he's just not open to licensing. Or is the a marketing person like good marketing people? They don't care. They want a good new product saying like, I, I don't, I don't know where he's coming from on that Lynn, but that is very uncommon. And it's really unfortunate when we have non-invent rights students that don't have a coach, they'll, I talked about this, I think last week, they'll experience something once and they'll go, that's how it always is. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe you should listen to me because we have 21 years of experience with students in 65 countries and literally the, the only class I needed to take in college twice <laughs> was statistics. Yes, I needed to take it twice, I confess. And so I, I think I still suck at statistics. But the one thing I learned about is sample size. And so that one experience is not any decent sort of sample size of experience. But when we've had God knows how many students over the last 21 years in over 65 countries, I can tell you that that is not common and your sample size of experience is too small. Now, Linda wasn't saying she thought everybody was going to think that, but I talk to inventors all the time. They experience one thing here or there. They kind of like they're putting themselves out there. They're feeling vulnerable. They experience something. It's not positive, And then they think it's always like that. Sometimes it's not negative. It's just a company saying no to an idea. And they think that's negative. That's not negative. That's just part of the process. Um, uh, Ray, Ravage. Um, hey, Andrew, I recently got a response from a toy company and was told that they will pass on the toy concept, but they referred to me, referred me to another toy broker companies. They send me multiple options. Should I contact them? Toy brokers are really going by the wayside. You know, to be honest with you, Ravage, if a toy company is saying, here's a toy, we pass on this, here's a toy broker. They're not putting you in the pro pile. If they like what you're doing enough, they would have said, oh, yeah, just keep sending us ideas here. Why they're sending you a toy broker, I don't know. Toy brokers are a dying breed. It's the only industry where there is a legitimate brokers. 
and they have been around the toy industry, but most toy companies are receiving ideas directly from inventors. And quite often, a lot of them will have like a public portal, kind of a bit of a black hole, and, and then they'll have another portal or they'll just, you'll just send directly to a particular person. So um, kind of weird that they're sending you to a broker. Maybe they're just trying to be helpful. Um, if they're open to receiving more ideas from you directly, they might've just been somebody helpful, but um, I don't think that's necessary. Maybe it was because your presentation wasn't good. That's very likely. They kind of put you in the amateur pile because you didn't have a good presentation. They're like, and they would prefer if you talk to a broker. So the broker could tell you like, this isn't good enough to send. I, I have no idea. I have Ray, Ray um, I don't know uh, because I haven't, I can't see what you sent or, you know, who they sent you to or what have you, but hopefully that's helpful. Uh, yeah. So Brian said, I, I'm a little curious if EventRite has ever considered doing a podcast format. I personally think your YouTube content works great as a licensing experience could be an opportunity perhaps. Um, yeah, I, I think I need to check with our IT guy. I haven't, I, I haven't checked lately, but I thought that all our po all our YouTube shows were converted to podcasts and put up. But if not, you know, this reminds me to check with our IT guy. I thought we were doing that. If we're not, I don't know why we stopped. Um, you know, we've gotten pretty big. I have 23 employees, about eight, yeah, probably more than that, contractors. All, all our people that work internally, except for the designers, are all employees. And so... Um, Sometimes I, I don't know, even though I'm the co-founder, I don't know everything that's going on. Um, we've gotten that big. We're kind of like the guys in the space in our little puddle, the specific puddle of guiding inventors to license their products. We're kind of like the guys there. So um, we've gotten fairly big. And I, I, I'm going to, this reminds me, I'm going to check with our IT guys to still see if we're turning all our um, YouTube shows into podcasts. I, I know we were doing that at one point in time. If we're not, we should start doing it again. I think it's great advice. Thank you. Um, Let's see. Let me try to get some somebody I haven't answered yet because we're coming up on the hour. Um, Travis says, I'm trying to narrow down my Google patent search so that I don't get thousands of results to search through. Do you recommend searching for a patent based on the names of known competitors or companies? Um, I don't have time to go. Patent searching is a little more complicated. All our students do it. We give our students um, training videos on how to do patent searching. It's not hard, but I, you know, it's a little bit more involved than we have right now, but I can tell you, you can do it. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like you find one and then you see the citations, the referrals, and then you find more. It's kind of like, oh, I got one. And then I got over here and over here. And if you know how to do it, um, anybody can do it. You don't need to be a professional. Um, but if you're just doing keyword searches, that can be an okay place to start. But then you find some relevant ones and then you see what their citations are. And it's kind of a little detective work. That's very crude way of putting it. Um, so I, I just don't have time to cover how to do a patent search, nor do I think I could really do it just in a live, live Q&A. I think that's more of a screen share thing. But we do train our students in how to do that. Um, Waleed said, uh, hi, Andrew, can I... Can I redesign my sell sheet and resend it to the same company that said no before based on a previous poorly designed sell sheet? Absolutely. Absolutely you can. And I would be honest. I would say 
I redesigned this product, so I think it has more benefit. Can you give it a look for five seconds? Let me know if you're interested. Um, yeah, definitely. I would say especially do that if it's subtle, your change, but it's significant. And so they might like see the same cell. She go, oh, I've seen this before and go, no. But so you might say, look, I, I reworked my product so that I think it has more benefit. Can you give it a quick look for five seconds and let me know? If you're not interested, just simply reply, um, not a right match. And actually prompt them to say no. Uh, we'll see if I can find some people that haven't answered questions. Brian said, thanks for answering about schoolwork. It's true that they are not offering much on licensing. Yeah, not much, not nothing. Like you think like you're studying industrial design, right? That's like industrial designers are like, I'm explaining this poorly, but engineers for product design. And sometimes it's about the look of it. Sometimes it's more the engineering. But it blows my mind that they don't train um, industrial designers to understand what licensing is. They think the only thing they can do is go out and get a job. It's kind of sad. And then when they do talk about it at all, they're like, oh, you got to start your own business. And it's like in most industrial design engineers, they don't want to start their own business. But with licensing, you don't need to. So, yeah, they just don't cover it in school. It's, it's crazy. And they should. And we're trying to get a licensing curriculum. Um, we got it into um, University of Newcastle for one semester. We did a virtual course. Um, self-paced course um, with them. And we're trying our, to get into universities, but they're just so slow to adopt new things. Um, but that is one of our goals. We want to educate college-age kids. We also try to educate um, high school kids. We do some things in, about licensing, but even a lot of adults don't understand what licensing is or don't know what it is. Um, uh, C said, I hear if you file in Canada's patent system and the U.S. and Canada can't seize the patent for any reason, is that true? I don't know what you mean by seize the patent. Just if you're in Canada, just file a U.S. provisional, and that, that would be my advice. But like I said, nothing today should be considered legal advice. Just file a U.S. provisional. That's what our Canadian students do. Um, Alexandri said, well, let me get to some people that I haven't answered. Um, no, Voyage Travel says, you know, it's, I don't blame you for asking these things, but can you go through quickly what to do once you have an idea? Not every detail, just the overview. I've done that sometimes. I don't have time to do that right now. Um, but I, I thank you for saying just the overview because it's like, you want, I can't like give you the whole course, like give it an hour here, you know. Um, but the very first thing I'll say, Voyage, is you have to study the marketplace. I'll give you the first step. You want to look at all the other products in the space, not, oh, that one sucks, that one sucks, mine's better than that, mine's better than all these. No, wrong attitude. You want to go, oh, there's products over here and they tend to have that benefit, and some over here and some over here. Mine fit's going to fit right here. Acknowledge the other products in the space of your invention. So if you have a barbecue spatula, acknowledge what these other ones do. Understand the space of your micro category. So, you know, if you studied all barbecue accessories, you'd be overwhelmed too much. But if you have a barbecue spatula, could you spend four hours studying all the barbecue spatulas and know every freaking barbecue spatula out there and know that? Well, yes, you could. 
because it's small enough. So understand the micro category of your invention and then figure out how your product fits in. And quite often you're going to change what your product is. Um, and if not, you're like, oh, no, it was good. It was spot on. But you know the market because trust me, the marketing managers, they know the market. You can't go on around with blinders. And so many inventors are paying 12000 on a patent, 5000 on a prototype. And I'm like, what's this? And they're like, oh, my God, how did you find that? And I'm like, I found it in five seconds by searching this. And so, but don't let me saying that mislead you that you're trying to verify there's nothing like your product. Yeah, you're kind of doing that. But if there's things that are somewhat similar, that can be good verification. So the, that sucks, that sucks. I'm just going to prove there's nothing like it. My product's the greatest. And this is size spread. Wrong attitude. And so many people don't do that research up front. So instead of telling you the whole process voyage, I'm telling you the, the most important part, that first step. So hopefully that was helpful. Um, maybe when I have more time, I can give a kind of a summary of the process. If you watch our YouTube videos, you will find videos on that. Which brings me to my next thought is if I spent a whole hour answering you guys' questions, if you could do me a favor and and live answering your specific questions, it's not just a rambling YouTube video, like answering your questions, um, click on the subscribe for the, our channel and then click on the reminder icon and then watch a bunch of our videos. It's a bunch of great free information. We're not constantly pitching our coaching program in there. You guys will appreciate that, I'm sure. I don't like watching YouTube videos or constantly trying to sell me something. I don't mind if they mention what they're selling, but give me good information. That's why I came on YouTube. And like, watch a bunch of our videos and like them. I really appreciate that. So um, I want you guys all to, to have a fantastic holiday. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, everything else. Um, and have a happy holiday. And enjoy your friends and family. I find that a lot of people um, are... Have a little time, maybe, maybe because your crazy uncle's talking, you start daydreaming about your invention. Um, think about what you really want to do with your life. And if inventing and coming up with ideas is part of who you are, most inventors, it's, it's become part of who you are. It just kind of happened to you one day. Um, start living it, you know, because if you just have ideas and you never reach out to companies and you don't know the steps to take, what good is that? You're like an artist that just paints in their garage and never shows their paintings to anybody. You got to reach out. And so watch our YouTube show, consider signing up with our coaching program. And um, I'll remind everybody to take care and keep inventing. Happy holidays, everybody. Bye.